welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. Welcome to Proper Mental, episode 162. And my guest this week is A.D. Smith, who is an award-winning broadcaster, journalist and speaker, and the only TV presenter in the UK with Tourette's Syndrome. A.D. created The Three Drinkers for Amazon Prime, and the show has released three seasons since 2019 in over 100 territories and in more than 10 languages around the world. And in this episode, I chat to A.D. about Tourette's Syndrome, about when it showed up in his life and the impact that it's had on his mental health over the years. We chat about the stigma around Tourette's and what the condition actually is and the day-to-day realities of living with tics and twitches. We talk about bullying, about trying to find work, about the drinks industry and we talk about Lewis Capaldi and his incredible performance at Glastonbury this summer that was so important for raising awareness around Tourette's. And I think we mentioned it in the episode but it's probably worth saying here in the intro as well that obviously Tourette's is not a mental health condition and we're not lumping it in with that in this episode but it is something that people have to live with that is very misunderstood, very stigmatised and going through life with Tourette's has a huge impact on people's mental health. AD actually takes me through some of the statistics around the Tourette's community and their mental health and it's shocking the numbers are really really upsetting so yeah it was great and really important I think to kind of explore this with AD and his own story is really inspiring you know particularly how he was told at school to not plan particularly big for the future he was kind of written off because of his Tourette's and because of his behavior which was undiagnosed ADHD and when he talks about how he decided to make a go of working in the drinks industry and getting into media and the amount of work he put in trying to get into these areas and the amount of sort of rejection and knockback that he faced along the way I just think it's such a a lovely and inspiring story. It was also really nice to talk about drink and alcohol, but from a creative perspective. Normally when it shows up on this podcast, we're talking about addiction, we're talking about all the bad things, but it was really lovely to hear about Eddie's sort of passion for his work in the drinks industry and to talk about the creativity and the history and the, I suppose, the complete other side of what normally comes up on this show. So that was really lovely too. I loved chatting to AD. He's the nicest man. He's one of those people that, once you speak to him for five minutes, you feel like you've known him for five years. He was so much fun. And that really comes across in this episode. He's a top, top man. I've put links to his social media in the episode notes. There's links there to his website as well. His social content is brilliant too. So well worth giving him a follow. If you'd like to watch this episode, you can do so on the Proper Mental Patreon page. Every time I speak to someone, I put the videos up there. I don't put them anywhere else. So if you'd like to watch your podcasts, that's a good place to go. It's £5 a month, very easy to sign up. And I'm usually a few weeks ahead when I record, so there's always a bunch of episodes up there that you can't get anywhere else. And if that sounds like something you might be interested in and you want to keep this podcast ticking over, keep it independent and ad-free, that's the best way to support. Link in the episode notes. Another great way to support, a free way to support, is to leave a review. Wherever you're listening to this, you could leave a review. It would be very much appreciated. This is episode 162 of the Proper Mental Podcast with A.D. Smith. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy.
literally my biggest fear. You and me both. <laughs> yeah, that would be the worst. I just think it would be the worst to get halfway through and then have to say, oh, I'm sorry, AD, I forgot. Oops. But, yeah, I've only done it once. I've only done it once in like 160 episodes, but there you go. Oh my God, that's amazing. Honestly, like I'll be doing my um, my Instagram content or whatnot and I'll get through to the very end and I'll be like, oh shit, I didn't press record. Or I've not plugged in the microphone properly, so all the audio, you know, isn't there. So I'm just kind of it looks like I'm miming. <laughs> yeah, it's just such a so such a frustrating waste of uh, waste of time, isn't it? I had a um oh. a film director on called Paul Andrew Williams, and he's like a yeah. BAFTA award winning director. And I was chatting to him about it, and he was like, "Oh yeah, I've done it on film sets, you know." And if you imagine that, imagine having like a cast and a crew and all that, and forgetting to press uh, press record on your camera. But there oh, you go. Um, I'll do a very little intro, mate, and then we can dive dive straight in. So here we are. It's another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest this week is A.D. Smith. How are you, mate? I'm amazing. Thank you. Even better now. Oh, mate. Yeah, me too. Me too. It's lovely to meet you. I'm really looking forward to this uh, to this chat. It's, I'm going to sort of double back to a conversation that we've just had because I was going to start to talk about how much you've got going on. I follow you on Instagram and you're kind of, you're always, I never know which country you're going to pop up in for a start mate um but we were talking about that and you were just saying that you've stopped using the word busy and you're using other words instead now i thought that was a really really interesting thing but why did you decide to do that mate so i feel like people use busy as a buzzword and it's kind of got so many negative connotations around it like it's great to have things going on in life and it's great to be you know occupied and all of this and have different passions but i think the word busy it's like say to people oh hey how are you oh yeah i'm great i'm just really busy and it's like I've, I've lost track of the amount of times that I've heard that word so I thought you know what I'm going to eradicate that from my dictionary and I'm going to use other words instead you know oh yeah there's lots of cool things going on right now or oh yeah I'm, I'm deeply involved in this and this it's great rather than just a singular word busy yeah I think we need to get rid of that I think we do. Yeah. It always makes you feel like you've just got more stuff that you kind of like have to do, doesn't it? It makes the stuff you want to do feel like a, a chore. I always used to, whenever I had a day off, I always used to refer to it as a lazy day. And I said it in therapy once and my therapist was like, it's not a lazy, lazy day. You're not being lazy for having one day off. And I really started to think about how I use that word. And then I noticed that um, that my kids was, had started saying it. So my son would say, like, have we got anything on after school? I'd say, no. He said, oh, can we have a lazy afternoon? So I was like, oh, crap. It, it's like seeking in. I'm just spreading it on. So now, you know, now we say that, you know, yeah, we're going to have a, a restful afternoon or an afternoon to chill together or something like that, you know, to try and take away those connotations. But the words we use are so important, aren't they, to to how we feel about our lives, I suppose. 100%. And I think, you know, even more so with an ADHD brain, because we give ourselves so much stick for actually taking time off. We constantly have to be active, doing something, pursuing a passion or a hobby, growing in the world, becoming more successful, whatever it might be. And, you know, the whole notion of how dare we take 10 minutes off? How dare we? Like the world will fall apart. Everything will stop. And it's this kind of grandeur thing where you have to sit down. Now, I struggle with this massively, you know, saying to myself, do you know what? It's okay. It's okay to take today off. You've worked really hard. You've achieved this, 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 and this. Give your mind and your heart and your body a rest. It needs it. And that is one thing. It's so true, mate. So true. And that's often where the best ideas come from, right? When you have that day where you don't do anything and that gives creativity a chance to like bobble up and that's it. You're off and running then. You've got the next next hectic period of life with all the things you fought up. <laughs> but yeah. That's what I love. I was um 
I was trying to think of the best way for us to start today. And I, I never like to start with a big question, but I'm going to start with a big question for you today, AD, because yeah. we're going to talk a lot about Tourette's today and the impact that that Tourette's has on mental health and mental well-being. And as soon as we say that word, there is going to be a lot of people that have a lot of sort of, I suppose, media-driven, misinformed view of what that means and of what we're talking about. So I thought the best way to start is just to clear that up a bit, little bit. What is Tourette's? That's a big question. How do you, when you explain it to someone, how do you explain to people what Tourette's is? So in a really simple form, Tourette's is a neurological condition and it presents itself in the form of what we call tics. So a tic could be verbal, i.e. a sound, or it could be motor, i.e. a movement. And to have Tourette's, to have an actual diagnosis, you need to have two of both of those for a two-year period in order for it to be Tourette syndrome. Now, there are tic disorders out there. And in fact, quite a lot of people with ADHD can, over time, get little tics that they have. But it's different from Tourette syndrome. A tic disorder is different from Tourette syndrome even though they're both ticks. The best way for me to describe Tourette's syndrome in terms of how it feels like. So imagine that you constantly have a mosquito bite and you constantly have this urge to itch. So it's always there. And the second that you scratch that itch, i.e. do a tick, that feeling goes away, disappears, it's gone. But then it comes back even worse. <laughs> so every time you tick, you get that moment, that, that tiny little fractional moment of feeling good, of feeling satisfied. And then that feeling, that itch comes back. A lot of people describe it as well, like an electric bolt that's constantly in your body, like fizzing away. And that feeling's always there making you want to tick. Now, the only time when it's not there is when you're doing something that you love or when you sleep. But when I talk about doing something that you love, this is what I refer to as your superpower, like your passion points. And it's actually very similar to ADHD as well. You know, when we become fixated on something that we absolutely love and that we're very driven to do, that gets our full focus, our full attention, and nothing else exists. And so in those moments when we're focusing on those things we love, our ticks pretty much 99% vanish because we're focusing on what we truly, truly adore. And, and you know, as a result of that, we become this force of nature. We are so much better at that task than everyone else purely because all the excess energy that would be going into our ticks or would be going to, into the ADHD is re-channeled into that one thing we love doing. Wow. That's incredible. Like it gives that energy somewhere to, somewhere to go. Yeah. Wow. That's the, see, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. That's a, yeah, that's a really, um, really cool thing. I think like, cause obviously this is a, a, a mental health podcast and I talk a lot about different mental health conditions and I, I do want to make it very clear that, you know, we're not, I don't want people to think that we're lumping Tourette's syndrome in with that. It's a separate thing, but the impact that it has on people's mental health is kind of what led me to the, to the conversation. And there was, um, I mean, there's actually a reel you, you put up yesterday, mate, where you went through some stats and I've written them down. I didn't want to like throw it on your toes in case they, they weren't to hand, but um, do you, do you, do you remember them? The ones that you went through yesterday is yeah. that I've got it written down. Yeah. Can we, we look at those a little bit because I think that really, will give people a kind of an insight of what we're talking about here and why we're talking about why it's important to talk about the impact of the, these things, these things have. hundred percent. And, you know, let's take things back to that whole conversation around mental health. When it comes to people with Tourette syndrome, our mental health is so compromised based on the stigmas and the misconceptions. Firstly, I'd say that this is arguably the most misrepresented and misunderstood disability on the planet 
it's definitely one of because people think that it's a swearing disability 91% of people with Tourette syndrome do not swear 91% yet because of the movies that are out there because of the documentaries that are out there because of all the social media videos that are out there we are kind of labeled as just being these people who swear I swear all the bloody time it's got nothing to do with my Tourette's because I'm from Yorkshire I've got a foul mouth <laughs> you know but what that does do is, is create this kind of rift within our community and our world as well. And that people are out there saying, you know, I'm not one of the people who swears. I'm not one of those people. But there are people out there who have what we call coprolalia. And when I was a little boy, when I was seven, I had coprolalia. I used to say F you, like with the actual words. And I'd say that to teachers and I'd frequently get sent out the room just get out the room. And they knew that I had Tourette's, but they'd send me out anyway because it was disrupting the rest of the class. But instead of it being a safe place that I was sent to, hey, AD, why didn't you go to the safe room? Why didn't you go to the safety room? What, you know, whatever it might be, I was just told to stand outside the classroom. That's punishment. So at that point, you're being punished for something you just, you can't help doing. When we think about the other stats to do with Tourette's, first of all, 50% of people with Tourette's are undiagnosed. So 50% undiagnosis rate. And within the people that we do know, 50% of those don't even go into higher education or get employment because they are petrified of being judged. They go through what they go through in childhood. They look at how the world has you know, treated them, the stares that they get, the tuts that they get, the bad behavior that they're led to think that they're all about. And so they think, you know, I'm not going to a job. I was, when I was at school, I was told to basically claim benefits and stay at home. Wow. That was my future. When I went to my university placement officer to talk about going to university, he laughed in my face because the whole notion of some kid with Tourette's who was badly behaved going to university was just an absolute, you know, hoofter, right? So I think, you know, we, we talk about other statistics as well that get a little bit more, more deep. 70% um, of our kids in schools are bullied and again, you can kind of understand, well, not understand, you can see why that happens because people do not understand what Tourette's syndrome is. And when you're the little kid who shouts noises or twitches, you immediately become a target, especially for kids who have other things going on in their own lives where they've got their own hardships, they'll redirect that attention to you so that you're then the, the baton and you're the one who gets all the grief. But as a result, of all of the misconceptions and the stigmas that we go through as a society, 48% of people with Tourette's syndrome consider suicide. And the latest stats from 2022 showcase that 27% of people with Tourette's syndrome actively attempt to kill themselves each year. There's some form of self-harm. Wow. Over a quarter. That's heartbreaking, yeah. isn't it? It really, uh, it really is. And a lot of the irony there is, you know, what you're saying about people with Tourette's syndrome, they, because of the, the fear and the way they've been treated, I don't want to step into society. And the irony is you're just talking about the, that energy flow, you know, and we could put people in a, in an environment that suits them and like treat them properly with compassion and, and watch them do amazing things. Right. It's truth. I mean, there was a management survey, management leadership survey done about, I think it's about four years ago now. And within that, it stated that, I think it, it was 35 or 36% of all managers in this survey would never hire someone with Tourette syndrome because they didn't think they could manage them based on what they knew about Tourette syndrome. And then you look at that and you think if someone went for a particular a job or whatnot, 
They just think, what's the point? I'll never get it. I mean, I have not applied for a single job in my life. Whenever I wanted a job, I would email the CEO or equivalent and say, I want to work for you for these reasons. And one of two things would, well, one of three things would happen. One, I get ignored. Two, I get a polite email saying, thanks so much, but we have no jobs. And three, they'd be like, I like you, talk to this person. And, you know, route three got me a job in San Francisco in California, despite being told that I'd never get over there because I had a disability. Why would anyone pay for a visa with some, for someone who has a disability? Unheard of. So, you know, sent 6,600 emails, but I got a damn job. <laughs> got one in the end, right? Yeah, that's amazing. Mate. Yeah, it really is. It's, it's fascinating, really, that someone can say, I wouldn't hire someone with Tourette's syndrome because I don't think I'd be able to handle them. Imagine if people were saying things like, oh, I'm not going to hire a person of color because you know what I mean? Like that's, it's, it's crazy really that that like, level of stigma exists. It reminds me about guys going back a few years, right? I live near Liverpool and there's a, a really good comedy club called Hot Water in, in Liverpool. And me and my wife were there one night and there was a, uh, the guy doing the compare, it was um, like Paul Smith. You might've seen him on, he's got quite a big Instagram. He was doing like the compare and stuff. And there's a guy in the back called Luke and he was, he was another stand up, and he had Tourette's. And he was uh, ticking and, and shouting things. And and Paul Smith said like, oh, just so you don't think it's like a heckler or something. He's Luke. He's one of the comics here. He, he's going to be, you know, ticking throughout the throughout the show. That, you know, it's just what we do here. And he said, oh, Luke's a, like an amazing uh, comic. Um, and if we've got time, he'll get up and do a bit. And he came up at the end and he was a fantastic comic. But his whole bit was about um, being invited on a dating show. And he went on the dating show that was on the telly. And then it turned out to be the undateables. And his whole bit was like, hang on a minute. You've invited me on a show. And now you're going to fucking call it that. And that, you know, he didn't know it was called out. And you think that's, that's the exact reason why stigma and shame and all this sort of stuff exists. It's because shit like that on primetime telly, right? If you think about it, the vast majority of the shows that are out there depicting people with disabilities are circus freak show acts. It's literally, imagine going back in time and having someone in a cage carted around, which everyone would look at, point at and stare at and pay to see. That is what shows like The Undateables are all about. And that's what I'm massively trying to move away from. I mean, I've done a lot of radio documentaries for the likes of Virgin Radio, BBC Radio 4 around Tourette's, around ADHD. There'll be more coming out next year about other neurodivergent elements. But it's about getting the facts right and understanding people for who they really are. Otherwise, we're always going to have this. Literally, it is a circus freak show mentality. When you watch shows like The Undateables, you're watching it because you want to be entertained by someone who could never possibly be able to date anyone because they're so quote unquote weird. And I've met a couple of people with Tourette's who've been on that show and each and every time they've massively regretted it. And I've been asked to go on shows like that and I won't tell you my response because I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this podcast. <laughs> you certainly can. <laughs> but yeah, I can well imagine. I can well imagine. Yeah, it's um it's the I always think it's the same with um like with mental illness stuff, you know, like the the serial killer in any movie is a schizophrenic or has a personality disorder, right? And it just like it just reinforces this this stigma and this um and this shame and it's just uh yeah it's just a mess isn't it it becomes sort of commonplace and we think people think they know what things are um i mean you mentioned your documentary there and i've listened to that mate in the um in the in the build up it's on my list to to ask you about because it's it's it wonderfully done and it was an emotional listen and it sounded like it was emotional for you too mate um to kind of like take a deep dive into it it was um what was the process like of putting that putting that together for you 
I always say that advocacy is like a double-edged sword. Would I give it up? No, never, never, never. Because it is so important and it drives me so much to see the reaction, to see the hope, to see the love in people's eyes when they are able to hear things or watch things where they see that their life is anything but over, but the complete opposite. I adore that. At the same time, it's difficult to delve into parts of your life that you've essentially wanted to tuck away and forget forever. And not only that, but hear stories from other people which remind you so much about yourself. And so, you know, I did two documentaries this year, one on ADHD and one on Tourette's syndrome. On the one with Tourette's syndrome, I, I did, you know, do a deep dive into the vast chasms of my life with some really upsetting moments that I had tried to bury away. I spoke with a number of people about suicide and we shared our stories within that. And there were a hell of a lot of tears. But the reaction once something like that goes out and the tremendous outpour of people who get in touch and who are so grateful because their niece or their nephew or their uncle or their brother or their son or their daughter has been able to listen to this or find value in it or see that they're not alone, that they're part of the community, that they belong, that they have meaning, that they have promise in life to succeed. That's what keeps me going for it yes when it comes out and I listen to it I burst into tears every time without fail I've not had a project come out surrounding neurodiversity where I've not burst into tears from relief of closing that wonderful chapter of pain to allow the good to then happen um, but I would never stop for the world because I think there is so much good and I think that the, the hardship is definitely outweighed by the positive yeah, very much. So that was beautifully put, mate. It's a like relate. I've never really thought of relatability from both perspectives, right? So re relatability is huge, right? The first thing you do if you're struggling with something, with anything, with who you are, you the first thing you, you just look for other people who can show you that are maybe a couple of steps ahead on the road, who can show you like what's possible or that something is possible, and that's like you say, it's so incredibly important. I've never thought of it from the other perspective. So people are listening to that and they're listening to you and they're feeling really seen and they're feeling really hopeful but by you meeting the people it's kind of it's reminding you of stuff that was challenging and was tough so there's like a like a reverse relatability there that kind of like yeah bubbles stuff up so it's like it's an incredibly vulnerable journey i think to explore these things but like you say it's just it's worthwhile and it's so important isn't it it's so 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 important it is it absolutely is i would i wouldn't change it I think it's an interesting one because, you know, I think that the happiest and the most bubbly people in life, of which I would definitely consider myself, are also the people who behind closed doors are some of the most, I don't want to use the word sad, but maybe reflective and emotional people. Like I'll have evenings where if I've worked on something that has required a lot of emotional energy or thought or vulnerability, shall we say, where I'll just want to shut down and I'll be super sad that evening. And you kind of have to acknowledge, understand that and know that it's okay. And that it's just a little period that you're going to go through for that evening, then come out the next day being okay again. But it's like when you injure yourself, right? If you get a cut, that cut needs to heal. If you do a deep dive into the dark chasms of your mental health, you need time to heal after that. It's not just sticking something over it and then getting on with life. You need to give yourself a bit of time for your, for your mental clarity. And I don't think, I think that's one thing that people 
often forget when they are talking about life, when they are going through therapy, when they're having deep conversations, that you need time afterwards to heal. Yeah, I call it the therapy hangover, right? So you come out, come out the session, and like on like sort of Bambi's legs, and you think, right, that's it. I, I've, you know, I try and keep my diary free after that because, yeah, you do. You need to, you need to heal up, and and you know, and you, you know, you mentioned people are very outgoing, and being happy can also have the other side of that. And I suppose that it's almost like a scale, isn't it? And if you're if you're lucky enough to have eights, nines, and tens then part of that sometimes is having one, twos and threes, right? And I I think with myself, I'd prefer that than constantly living around a five and a six. You know, like I'll take it. I'll take the down if I still get the up, you know? And that's what life is, isn't it? Life is never perfect. There's always ups and downs. But I guess here's the question. It's like when someone checks in and says, oh, hey, how you doing? Like how many of us actually say to that person, do you know what? I'm actually really shit at the minute. Like I'll be okay. I'll be totally fine. I'm just feeling a bit shit today. It's like, what the fuck does someone say in response to that? Like, oh God, I'm so, you know, I'm so sorry. Like they're thinking shit. Now I need to offer like, oh, do you want me to come around tonight? Knowing full well that they don't want to come around tonight. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's so funny, you know, being able to be truthful about how we feel, but at the same time, not wanting to make someone feel like they then have to, you know, put on this whole charade and show to make sure that you're okay. I'm feeling shit. I'll be totally fine. I just need a bit of time tonight and then I'll be all right tomorrow kind of thing, you know? Yeah. The exhaust of feeling like that and trying to pretend you're not the energy that that takes is fucking exhausting, isn't it? Exhausting. And it does, it feels really nice to just go like, yeah, I feel crap, you know? Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's funny how we don't how we don't do that. I like to think of it as an opportunity. When someone asks me, how are you? I like to use that as an opportunity to check in with myself because we don't do that, right? We're just on to the next, on to the next. And so if someone says, how are you? I've been trying to think like, how actually am I? Because I haven't asked myself for a bit and I know I'm just going to say fine because that's what I always say. I started saying it before you finished asking it, right? <laughs> so yeah, just take a second to be like, am I fine? I think I am, right? Okay, yeah, I'm fine. And yeah, like just that bit of self-inquiry, right? Can uh, sometimes, I don't know, even like give you a heads up on something that might be coming later that you hadn't, you know, rather than being caught out with it. It's like, oh shit, I'm not fine. <laughs> you know, but get find out about it first. Yeah. What are we like? I think the other thing as well is like looking in the mirror and talking to yourself. And while that might for the vast majority of people sound really weird, it, it's like if you're talking to yourself like another person, then you exist. Like if you think about it, we see what we see through our eyes. That's it. We see the world around us. It's this constant narrative. It's a movie. It's a TV show. It's a dream, whatever it might be. But when you look at yourself in the mirror and actually talk to yourself and ask yourself a question, you're forced to have a conversation with yourself. And I find that there's so much more clarity in that than just kind of sitting there, you know, allowing your mind to wander off. You're holding yourself accountable for a conversation and an answer at that point. Yeah, it's harder to harder to lie to yourself if you're looking in your own eyes, right? And sometimes you can kind of see it in your face. I don't know if you get that. Sometimes I can look at myself and go, oh, you do not like, you do not look okay. You know, you can see you look the like difference. shit. You look like shit, <laughs> mate. Yeah, you need a nap and some water immediately. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh that's a, a useful, a useful thing, mate. Yeah. I wanted to um just double back on something a little bit because you mentioned that Tourette's kind of showed up in your life at the age of seven. Um did that I suppose like I'll I'll ask a question before that. Is Tourette syndrome, is that something people are born with or is it something that's like triggered by 
um, you know, like a traumatic event or something like that, maybe? So the findings that we have so far suggest that it is carried over by DNA. So it's in our genetics. It is in our genetics, but it can lie dormant and come out and be triggered by something later on in life too. I know a couple of people who've been through very traumatic experiences. There's this one individual who went through a, a situation of rape and as she was coming out the other end of that horrific experience, she developed Tourette's syndrome and tics. I know the vast majority of people who, when they were little, around the ages from five to eight, that's typically when the onset of tics come out. My personal journey, when I was about five, I, I used to love acting. I was all about acting. It was my big passion, my hobby when I was a little boy. And I put myself forward. I got commissioned by Sesame Street for a, a show called The Big Bag, of which I was one of the main characters. And my, my co-host in that was the guy who played Neville Longbottom in Harry Potter, Matt Lewis. And so, you know, having time in my life, loved it on stage, on set, owning it, bossing it, like the, the future prospects and the career potential there was massive. And then when I was about six and a half, my first tick started coming out and it was like, what's going on? And no one knew what it was. No one knew what it was. You know, at home, I would I would be punished for it to begin with because it was a case of stop making those stupid noises. So I'd stand on the stairs with my hands on my head. I wouldn't be allowed to play the PlayStation, do any of these things. And it was, what will the people at the TV station think if you keep doing that? And sure enough, I was cancelled. They just got rid of me. The acting school dropped me, agent dropped me, the TV show dropped me. So I went from having the time of my life achieving having worked so hard to basically being cancelled and told that I'd never achieve anything. And that was that was the next 10 years of my life, like 10 to 15 years of my life, in fact. My whole journey throughout school and university was either me making my own opportunities myself or being told that I would fail. And in childhood, I basically pretty much stopped playing outside with friends from the age of about 10, 11, um, had very few friends at school, and my life became an online journey. I used to go on this thing called Habbo Hotel, which was this online chat room. And I, it was like um, <clears throat> you'd have a little character. It was like The Sims. Imagine The Sims but with people online. And I built businesses on there from the age of like 11. I was earning money on this game in 2020 online. I was earning a couple of thousand each year by selling 3D items of furniture on eBay to rich kids. <laughs> but, you know, I basically started deal or no deal equivalent on this thing and loads of businesses. And, and that in itself set me up for being an entrepreneur. So when I fast forward now, you know, years into the future, I learned so much from a, a childhood of um, being excluded from all situations and not captive. I don't know what the, quite, quite what the word is, but I lived in my little shell in my bedroom on my computer. And while most people would think, oh, God, that's terrible. What a horrible life. I'm like, it wasn't ideal, but what did I learn from it? Well, now I'm a serial entrepreneur. Now, fast forward 10 years when everyone told me, A.D. Smith, you'll never have a TV show. You've got Tourette's. I can't commission you. You'll waste my production budget. I'll have to edit more to edit your ticks out. I think, fuck that. I'll go out and I'll make my own TV show. So I did. I learned all the skills, the business acumen, the entrepreneurial skills that I developed from when I was a kid, when I was 10. And I fund my own TV show through branded content. So now you've got three seasons of a series on Amazon Prime. It's on a bunch of airlines all around the world. It's in 180 countries, 36 languages. That doesn't happen because you just wake up one day and decide to do something. It happens because you go through pain. And pain is beauty. Pain is learning. 
And we should never forget that. Every time someone's sitting there thinking, God, what, what a shitty situation I'm in. I can't believe this is happening to me. Yeah, it's fucked up. But what are you going to learn from it? What are you going to take from that? Fast forward a couple of weeks when, you, when you've healed, how are you going to manifest that learning and turn it into something phenomenal? Because that's what people should be thinking about. Yeah, mate, that's so sick. Yeah, I feel inspired just hearing you say it. But when I was kind of reading up on, on because you do a lot of different things, and this thing that stood out to me is everything that you do, you've like you've created the space for it. Like you've gone and done it. Like, and these are not, like you mentioned the TV show, these are not like small things either, dude. Like these are real, uh, you know, does that come, is, you know, part of that come from a place of like, yeah, fuck you. You know, people said, you'll never do this. So I'm just going to go and do it bigger and better. Is that, is that like a driver for you, AD? Yeah. I think it has to be. <laughs> <laughs> I, I sit there and it, it's not proving people wrong, but at the same time wanting to make a difference too. I often sit there and think, God, am I doing this for the right reasons? But I chase the next big thing and I chase creating the next big TV show, for example, because I want to inspire as many people out there to understand. And there's a couple of ideas that I've got looming right now that I'm talking to different distributors or TV channels about that I, I seriously do hope progress because they have the ability to change the landscape of how people associate disabilities and, and mental health. And, you know, I, I hope that, I truly hope that something, well, no, it will, it will happen because look who you're talking to. If I get my mind to something, I'll make it happen. And I, I don't know, I, I love having different projects on the go. It is exhausting, but what else am I going to do? Sit down and do nothing. Like, I try and go on holiday twice a year and as I'm sitting there trying to switch off my mind just won't and <laughs> that's where I get my next big ideas from um but the, the thing that I'm working on right now at the moment is the world's first inclusivity incubator so basically let me rephrase that so the new thing that I'm working on right now, because as you know, I work in the drinks world. So I present TV shows about drinks. I'm a, a drinks TV personality and presenter. But what I've noticed in my 10 years have been, that I've been doing this is that there's so few diverse faces. There's so, so few people you know, talking openly about different disability topics, ethnicity topics, um, LGBTQI plus topics. So I thought I'm going to create the first inclusivity mentorship. So it's called Drinklusive. And I'm literally launching it in two weeks. So the whole point of this is over a six month period, I onboard six people, two from an LGBTQIA plus ethnicity and disability diversity community, socioeconomic status taken into account. I'm going to fast track their learning credentials. So I'll pay them to write for the TV show website. I'm going to give them about £2,000 worth of wine and spirits education and training. I'm going to get them a commission on The Independent, a commission on jancisrobinson.com, which is the number one trade publication, a ton of glassware, get them paid to um, work at London Wi-Fi, all these amazing things. So at the end of six months, they can walk into any company and apply for a position and have be overqualified for certain roles to get it. And I can't wait for that to kick off because that's going to change the world of drinks. Mate, that's incredible. That's really incredible. And then you, you start thinking like, well, what are those people then going to go on and do? And how is that going to yeah, impact all the people that are looking at them and saying, oh, that person looks like me. Look what they can do. I can do it too, right? Yeah. Where I did, love that. Yeah. How did you get into the drinks industry, AD? How did, where did your interest oh. in that come from? So another beautiful story here. So 
I was alluding earlier to the fact that when I was at um, university, and I was alluding earlier to the fact that when I was at school, I was laughed at for wanting to go to university. So I applied to Lancaster University, fell in love with it, both my choices, didn't quite meet the grades I needed to go for the, the course that I wanted, but they said, this guy has applied twice here. We're going to put him on that course because he's shown loyalty. So I went on that course, which had a year placement. So my third year, I had to go somewhere and do in between an internship and a graduate scheme. It's kind of the placement was, was somewhere in the middle of that is how you'd look at it from a kind of qualification perspective. So I go to the placement department and I say, I want to go to America. <laughs> so no you're not going to america you've got to be realistic like what well, you've got a disability they're not going to hire you in america don't do that do, do you know what try and get a job in the uk but i think that'll be a bit difficult actually maybe just take a year out maybe just focus on yourself and take a year out so that's basically what i was told <laughs> my first thought when people say no is fuck you yes <laughs> so i then turn over the ramp so I, I sent 6,662 emails to employers in America. Instead of going out to the nightclub, to the sugar house on a Friday night, I was sitting inside sending emails because I'll be damned if I wasn't going to achieve that goal. And I got offered a bunch of jobs over in the States. One in particular was a graphic design agency called Unit Partners over in San Francisco of all places. And at this point, I hadn't even come out as gay. So that was another revolution that was about to take place. Um, and so, you know, I'm like, sorted all that out, got the visa, I'm on the way over. The plane was delayed. It took me about 48 hours to get over to San Francisco. The first plane was cancelled. The second one was delayed. I get off the plane and I get there to this message on my phone. It says, hi, it's so-and-so from Lancaster University. Forgot to mention, there's a networking event tonight at 7pm at the Palomar Hotel. You can't miss it. We've not done one in five years. So I'm like, ah, oh, shit. So I go in my suitcase and take up my crumpled ass suit, put that on this little like 20 year old kid, like wandering into this five star hotel, press the button in the lift. And it suddenly dawns on me. Ah, oh, shit, I'm 20. I can't even drink in this country. And now I've got to talk to a load of boring bastards for the next two hours without having any alcohol. I'm like, oh, God. So I open the door to the networking room and this guy immediately locks eye contact with me. And he goes, hi, I'm Steve you need a glass of wine, just grabs one from the side and thrusts it into me. I'm like, this guy's a legend. So Steve Smith, same last name as me, went to the same university, was in the same halls of residence and studied the same course, albeit 25 years prior, and grew up four miles down the road from me. Turns out he and his wife owned the only urban winery in the whole of Silicon Valley. So they invited me over for Sunday lunch and that was it. Every weekend I'd go and I'd help them out at the winery. It was sick. So that's where I fell in love with it. Like through them, through their vision, I fell in love through wine. They adopted me as their nephew and they just, they opened my, my eyes to this world. And it's my honor and absolute privilege now to look after them when they come over to London and take them out to restaurants because of the career that I've built. And it's just such a beautiful thing. There's not many people in the world like that. So if you meet them, embrace them for everything that you can. Mate, that's amazing, right? Talk about like fortune favors the bold, right? <sighs> it's uh yeah, that's a really, really lovely story. And then everything kind of kind of grows grows from there. And the fact that you're able to, yeah, like pay it back and, and show them around, that's uh that's really lovely, mate. Yeah. It it must it sounds like that just yeah, the the I suppose the is it the creativity aspect of drinks that kind of captured your 
imagination because it's clear you mentioned that you know Tourette syndrome energy it's clearly that that's somewhere really positive for you to put that to put that flow flow and make things happen but it seems really creative I mean you know if people listening who don't follow you on Instagram you made a, a what did you make out of a Big Mac the other day was it a Big Mac cocktail or gin or something mate Oh my God. Yeah. I like to take items that no one could think could possibly be a cocktail, deconstruct them and turn them into something. So yeah, I took a Big Mac and turned it into a Big Mac martini. If you like a Bloody Mary, it was like a Bloody Mary martini, essentially. Rim the glass with all the little seeds, little sesame seeds. The only bit of the Big Mac I didn't use in the actual drink was the meat patty because I thought it'd be a bit gross to have a big chunk of meat there. So what I did was I cut that into little circles and put it in an ice cube and put that in the glass instead. (laughs) So it was still a part of it. (laughs) But do you know what? I like to say that cocktails, mixology, alcohol in general, is a form of art. And we have a huge issue in this country of people binge drinking, even more so in the LGBTQIA plus world. People go out to get shit faced. It is not about quality, it's about quantity, and we need to change that. So if we look at drinks as a form of art, think about your blue, black, green, brown, red, pink, whatever your color might be. That's your grape, that's your grain, that's your potato. That's all the different raw ingredients that you would use to create something. And now I want you to think about your chalk, your pen, your felt tip, your crayon, all these different elements that you would utilize. That is your still, that is your grape press, that is your oak barrel, that is your malolactic fermentation, your bottle, your yeast, all the things that you use as part of the process. Now, if you take a blank canvas and use the colors in the method, you create a piece of art. If you take a bottle and you get your grapes in the method, you're creating a form of art. It's just something that you can taste. And that's why people spend so much money on old and rare alcohol, because they are literally and quite simply drinking a piece of history. In the same way that you can look at a piece of art on your wall, you can taste what's in here and keep the bottle afterwards. So it's still an artifact and a piece of art too. That's why I try and explain it to people who don't quite get, why would you ever spend that much on something? Or, oh, I just like to drink to get pissed. You should drink because you truly enjoy the taste of what's in your mouth. And there's little tasting tips and tricks that I do with people. So lots of people pick up their glass, put it in their mouth and swallow it. That's it. Uh Uh-uh. You're doing it all wrong. When you want to appreciate a wine, put it in your mouth, move it to the top of your tongue, underneath, to the left and to the right over about a six second period, then swallow it. You've got to remember, we have tens of thousands of taste bud receptors in our tongue. If that is reaching about 15% because it's literally going in your mouth and being swallowed, you get a fraction of the flavor. If you move that all around your tongue, you're getting bitter, sweet, salt, sour, all those elements combining. And that then gives you this taste journey, this taste sensation, and you get so much more from what you're drinking. You appreciate it. Yeah. There's something really lovely as well about sort of spending that time focusing on all those things, right? In this world where we're so out of ourselves and always, you know, looking at external and we don't know what's going on. Like you say, it's just consume, consume, consume onto the to next to kind of spend that time to to tune in and think about things. And yeah, that's like it just yeah, it sounds sounds lovely to be honest, mate. Yeah, it sounds <laughs> sounds really, really nice. And that that creativity is important for us as well, isn't it? To kind of uh express ourselves in in that way, it's really good for our for our mental health. And how do you like when you're doing all these things? And you know, we sort of mentioned before how much you have going on. How does that impact your 
meant let's, let's let me ask that question in two ways how does that impact your Tourette syndrome you know if you're getting tired if you're getting you know like working loads and how also separate to that how does that impact your mental health how do you look after your mental health when you're jumping on planes and doing these things all over the place so the Tourette's definitely gets worse when I'm stressed. So I can, if I'm getting stressed, it will get worse. If I'm about to have a virus, I know two days before I've got the virus because my Tourette's gets worse and my body is something to do with the dopamine levels. Um, and, and so it is tricky. You do have to kind of think, oh God, the ticks do make you even more exhausted as well because you've got to think every time you're ticking, that is energy. Not only is it physical energy, but it's mental energy as well. And in addition to that, the pain. So my ticks right now, I have an eye roll that I've got at the minute. I twitch my neck a bit. Probably the most painful that I've got is I, I twitch my abdomen, which makes me swallow air. So I'm essentially giving myself a inflated stomach and that is incredibly painful. Um, and so, you know, there's, yeah, pain, 85% of people with Tourette's live in chronic pain. And that's one thing that no one thinks about. They just think the twitches and the ticks or whatever are there. They don't think about the pain. If I twitch my throat, my throat becomes strained. And it's interesting. If you listen to when I'm on TV or radio, sometimes I'll walk in and I'll have a higher octave voice. When I come in with a lower octave voice, you know that I've been twitching my neck <clears throat> because it, it just sounds a lot deeper. My vocal cords are affected. In terms of how do I look after my mental health? Honestly, I'm still navigating that journey. I think that I, I pushed myself to my limits. And at the moment, it seems to be just before I'm at that limit that I stop and pull myself back in. I'm still learning how I can be a lot better to the people around me because when, when we get to a certain point where we overextend ourselves, we do start to become irritated and frustrated. And I think we need to learn the coping mechanisms to, as I say, pull ourselves back in and ground ourselves. And um, I try and take a cold shower every single morning. I think that that allows me to just see reality and have a clearer perspective. When I wake up, I'm a bit groggy or whatnot. So as soon as I get in that shower, have a nice hot shower, then cold water immediately. I try and talk to myself in the mirror when I'm feeling a bit low or, or whatnot to bring my charisma and my confidence back up. Um, and then I think just allowing yourself to have me time as well and knowing that you know we alluded to this at the beginning we don't always have to be on simple question is if i don't do this task is the world going to end if the answer to that is no then allow yourself the time to take a break and don't become you know panicked about it it will be okay yeah that's a that's a learned skill in itself i think like switching off is a learned skill if i don't practice that regularly then i you know, I sometimes have to remind myself, I mean, oh yeah, you've stopped practicing this because you're not doing it anymore, you know? And, you know, like you say, it's a learning, learning journey. Yeah. I suppose like I'm really, I'm conscious of your time today, mate. We're coming up on the, on the hour mark. I was, when I was like writing down things to chat to you about, I was thinking like I, we could go full Rogan today, mate. And <laughs> there's probably a whole nother episode on ADHD and, uh, you know, all these other things that we could, we could talk about. Um, but I think we've done a, a great job of, of working, working with this today, but I wanted to, and your documentary starts um, with talking about Lewis Capaldi. And I wanted to talk about that as well, because, I think that was um it was like such a beautiful moment when uh, the Glastonbury and I think it was a it I think it did a lot of good for the 
advocacy around Tourette's. I think it really put that in a nice place and put it in front of people who probably misunderstood it or didn't hadn't even thought about it. And um, but what as someone who has Tourette's syndrome, what was that like watching you know Lewis Capaldi at Glastonbury? It was a moment where the world stood still because he had no idea that what he was doing at that moment in time. And again, it's this double-edged sword. One person's pain becomes an, another whole community's you know, emblem of hope. And when he was on stage then, what that did was push us forward about five years in terms of education and awareness, because people don't look at Lewis Capaldi as someone who swears uncontrollably, right? They look at him as someone who is incredibly talented, who has a superpower. And he is a person just like everyone else. And he was struggling in that moment. I think that there is a bit of a misconception in how he was struggling. I don't think his tics were stopping him from singing. I think his vocal cords were shot because he'd been working so hard and he was so frustrated his tics were coming out. And I think that's one thing to clear up because when we talk about superpowers, that is literally his superpower. He sings, he writes lyrics. He's a very talented individual. And you know, if we said that that could get in the way of that, that means every performance his Tourette's could come out and stop it. No, that's not the case, at least to my knowledge and belief. Um, but it was a very, very moving moment. I mean, in the week that followed after that, and even the weeks that followed after that, because I've done so much advocacy work for Tourette's, there were so many people getting in touch to have a chat because for the first time, they actually saw that it wasn't just a swearing thing and that there was a story around it. And I have to take my hat off to people like him who have such a huge following and audience you know I'm tiny in comparison to what Lewis Capaldi is and so you know we all go on our journey and we all do our bits to help but when we make ourselves vulnerable like that to millions and millions of people across the world the good that that can do as a result is such a remarkably beautiful thing yeah it's um it was a really like stunning, almost like it's gone past now, like a Glastonbury moment. It's like a cultural moment, I think. And beautifully how, when his voice wasn't doing what he wanted it to do and the, the crowd sort of held him. Right. And we've talked a lot in this episode about being rejected by society of feeling like you don't fear of people being bullied and to have a situation where someone's like, I'm going through this thing. And to everyone say, cool, we're here with you, man. Like, we'll, we'll sing for yeah. you, bro. Like, you, you know, like that's, I think that, would give i think it doesn't matter what we're talking about that gives people a lot of hope right just in fucking humanity dude like it like for any other any reason why someone feels othered or feels shamed or anything that like do you know what like there's 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 other routes to go right we can fucking look after each other can't we you know it doesn't have to be the other way amen like for the first time ever i felt like the world was holding my hand as well and be like you got Tourette's? it's all right it's fine and then I got on the tube and people were staring like shit at me again. <laughs> so, you know, I, I had a momentary period of peace. Um, but yeah, it's, I think that's the thing, you know, my, my one bit of advice to people who don't have Tourette's who are out there thinking, okay, what's going on? If you are on the tube or a bus or a train and you see someone who's twitching and doing these, what in your mind is this weird twitch, smile at them and let them get on with it. Don't keep looking over. Don't feel worried for your safety. Don't feel like you're about to be mugged. Like the, the looks that I get on a regular basis, if I'm stressed out one day on the tube and it's packed from people thinking that I'm about to stab them and, and genuinely being 
worried for their own safety or being angry or tutting or rolling their eyes or looking at me in disgrace. Like that is what we need to get away from. And the only way we can do that is with education and awareness. So smile and get on with your day. Yeah, that's a a lovely thing for people to think about, right? Because there's loads of like really shitty, rude people out there who are going to behave in that way. There's probably a lot of other people, when we talk about sensitive subjects, I think people are really scared of getting it wrong. So they don't know what to do. And sometimes by not doing anything at all, it comes across as not caring or, you know, and I think when we talk about anything, when we talk like big conversations at the moment, whether it's like race or sexual identity, gender identity, there's a, there is, it, yeah, it's handy for people to know like what to say to someone, you know, and if we do see someone, like you say, ticking is, is how to respond to that in a way that shows compassion and just lets anyone know like, yeah, you're fine here, man. Like you're cool with me, you know. I, do you know what? And let's extend that way of thinking out even further. So, you know, we're talking about mental health. How can we help everyone's mental health and our own each and every day? When you're walking down the street and you see someone who otherwise you would look away from, for whatever reason, because you're embarrassed, because you don't want an awkward situation, because you think that they look dangerous and big and scary, just smile at them because you have no idea what someone else is going through. And a smile can light up the world. A smile is a common, common sign in every single language, regardless of where you come from. A smile says, it's okay. I'm friendly. I'm happy. I'm here. Have a great day. That's it. You don't need to say any words. Just smile. And you can turn someone's shittiest day into one of the best they've had because they have a moment of reckoning in that one second when you smile. It's beauty. I try and practice that every single day. And not only does it help other people's mental health, the courage and taking yourself out of your own comfort zone each and every day by doing that will help you immensely on your own journey too. Yeah, that's sick, man. And, you know, you, you I smile at someone quite often, you'll get one back. Maybe they're not expecting a smile, you know, and your natural <laughs> response if someone smiles is to give one back, you know. So you're dishing them out and collecting a few as well, which is which is always nice. Oh, mate, it's been yeah. amazing to chat to you today. Like I say, there, there's there's so much, so much we could have gone, but it was an absolute, uh, absolute pleasure, mate. Thank you so much for your time. It was lovely. Pleasure's all mine. Thank you so much. Cheers, mate. Big up to that proper mental podcast. Proper mental podcast.